passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. (laughs) Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. Matt Pramer, Scope with Jared Mack on this Monday edition. Welcome to the show. It's week five of the college football season, if you could believe that or not. We are now officially past the third of the season. The Ducks are three and one on the season going into a home game against Stanford, 8 p.m. kickoff. Ooh, that's going to be late. Uh, FS1, I believe, is the TV channel. Uh, Ducks have opened up as a massive favorite, 15. It's jumped up to 16 and a half points. Uh, I'm sure this mailbag is going to address a lot of what we saw last week in Oregon's thrilling 44-41 win at Washington State, while also looking ahead to this weekend's matchup against an opponent that, just like their previous one, has tended to ruin some seasons or give Oregon some fits when it's been unexpected. Yeah, no, we were talking on the drive back about kind of teams that have given Oregon trouble historically. And it's been, for whatever reason, Washington State and Stanford. And I think we yep. settled on over the last 10 years, there's been like, was it, do we say three seasons counting the COVID year where they've swept both Washington yeah. State and Stanford? I think that's what it is. So speaks to the difficulty of winning these two games back there, back to back. And we'll get to some Stanford stuff on the back end. So I don't want to jump too much into it. But, and then, of course, throughout this week more. But, you know, the Stanford program is not on the same trajectory it had been for most of the tw- all the 2010s. And it felt like at least the early part of the 2020s where it was like, well, they could be pretty competitive. That Maybe they're not quite there right now. But we'll see. We'll get, get into more of that throughout the week, including a question at the end of the show. But we're going to start with some Bo Nix talk because I think that's a good place to just kind of a continuation from some of what we talked about on Saturday. Uh, first question from at Hodges underscore Ryan. How important has the Dillingham Knicks connection become? I know we are only a quarter of the way through the season, but it feels like the connection is paying some big dividends early. Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Thanks for using the hashtag. I believe four out of the five questions we've selected did. and That makes it very easy to find your questions. Sometimes I find it without, but for the most part, the hashtag is kind of what leads me to, uh, to your question. So if you want your questions asked on the show, that's the best way to do so. Um, I wanted to start with the Dillingham part first, just because I feel like uh, we gave a, we gave some praise to him on Saturday, but we didn't give as maybe as much as, as needed. And I, I mean, I think it stood out last night. It's been a crazy couple of days of travel. I mean, it took like seven hours to drive back from Pullman, um, so I hadn't had a chance to watch uh, the opposing head coach press conference. But it really stood out to me what Jake Dickert said when I watched it. Uh, on Sunday night, which was just like that scheme is really, really good. Like he was effusive in his praise for how the Oregon called that game and how difficult it made it for Washington State's defense to respond. 
Um, and Dickert's a stand-up guy who also was, you know, taking some responsibility. Like we need to be better defensively. But he said at a certain point, it was just what answers do you really have for some of what Oregon was throwing at them? And, and a lot of credit to just sort of the way that they manufactured some of those long passes with the rollouts and the routes going across the field and the athletes they have. And just like at a certain point, they figured out areas that they could take advantage of because of speed and athleticism and because of the ability to protect him in the pocket and get him moving around. And we just didn't have a whole lot we could do about it. And that was the kind of plays that I think changed this game for Oregon. Um, and throughout the game, they had success throwing the ball in those kind of play. I think one of the first big completions of the game was, was a play like that uh, over the cross, uh, a kind of a crossing route over the middle of the field for a big game. And I just kind of went back to that over and over along with mixing in a bunch of run stuff. But um, I just wanted to kind of point that out because I think we've talked a lot about Dillingham's struggles in the red zone and there were some shortcomings there, but the rest of the field, I thought he was pretty darn good. And I think it's interesting kind of hearing the opposing coach perspective on that. Um, regarding their relationship, it, it, one of the things we did talk about coming in to this season was if you look at Nix's career at Auburn, his three seasons, his best year was his freshman year statistically. Um, it was his year with his most passing yards, most touchdowns. I don't know if it was fewest interceptions or not, but you look at it and you go, that's maybe a quarterback who's kind of, you don't want to say regress, but struggled to kind of maintain the kind of production he had early on in his career when he was the SEC freshman of the year. Clearly there's a good connection here between the two. Clearly this is somebody that respects his position coach, respects his offensive coordinator, even Bo going back and, and kind of listening to it again, you know, just said Kenny got hot in the second half. That was a big part of our success. So, I just think it is important to kind of talk about the dynamic here because as easy as it is to say, yeah, Bo just made some awesome plays, which he 100% did. I think Dillingham deserves a ton of credit because you think about, sure, some of the throws were really tough. The one to Bucky on that fourth down to extend that drive is, again, mm -hmm. having watched that from a couple different angles now, one of the better throws you'll see on a Saturday. But a lot of the throws that were made were set up by, I think, really good scheme and really good um, play calling from Coach Dillingham. So I think it's important to kind of that these two do work in, in kind of concert with each other. It's a massive connection. I think we've talked about this before and how good Nick's was at Auburn as a true freshman, you know, winning freshman of the year. And then, uh, yeah, having one of his best statistical seasons, I think you could maybe argue that it wasn't just because his interceptions. I think that was the most he threw in his career in that season, but it also was him as a true freshman. So that's something to take away from it. Um, but Nix has been astound outstanding this year and the connection with Dillingham absolutely has something to do with that. I mean, those guys are just comfortable. It's a lot easier coming into an environment where you have a general idea of what the offense is going to be, how the guy coaches. I mean, it's only been three years since those guys were together at Auburn. So it's not like both of them really have changed that much. Um, and on, on Saturday against Washington State, you know, I rewatched the game and the schematics that Dillingham's offense, just like I came away with after BYU, is just really impressive. There's just a lot of quick nuances. And then there's honestly a lot of the passes are decisions made by the defense and what Nix does as a fourth year starter and his experience on the football field. And, you know, the, he watches a safety and whatever way the safety goes, that's the Nix goes the other way. And that's like a huge part of what Kenny Dillingham does in the passing attack. So this this connection is is vital. Um, I don't know how what it would be like if it were a different starting quarterback in other than Knicks and what that connection would be like. Uh, I think it would work because I think Dillingham's offense is a lot of easy throws as well as some some shots down the field, which is really impor important to get your quarterback going. Um, but I thought it was interesting that Nick said that that Dillingham got hot as well. I mean, I've, I've never really heard about a coordinator getting hot, more more about a quarterback getting hot. But he was rolling. I mean, that offense was really working the entire game. Um, it just other than in the red zone, and on the on the rewatch of those red zone plays, Washington State they just handed it to Oregon. Um, they just blew up every play. Uh, those are plays that worked last week against BYU, another formidable defense. And against Washington State, they just they just jumped in. Their sideline sideline to sideline speed was was really great in the in, in the red zone area, but not really that good in the open field. And uh, Oregon took advantage of that, and then ultimately figured out how to score in the red zone the last couple drives. So it it worked out in the end. But 
um, I think this connection is, is huge now and it's huge moving forward. And that's a lot of confidence. So those two have built up in each other. I think Dillingham knows the, the strengths of Knicks and is playing into those. Um, I think a lot of these games, the last first four weeks of the season have started off with Bonix getting short passes, screens or quick outs or slants. They're not taking deep shots all that often in, in the first 10 or 15 plays of the game. And that's allowing Knicks to get into a rhythm. It's allowing him to see the defense a little bit before having to make a real critical decision. And by the time that time arrives, he's kind of in a rhythm and he's in a flow. He's got the confidence. He, he's making throws. He's seeing the defense. <coughs> I, I also think you know, the fact that he's playing in front of a really good offensive line and zero sacks is a, a big piece of this. Um, he was sacked 17 times in 2019, 21 times, which is almost twice a game in 2020, and then 12 times. He didn't play, I think, the final like four games of the season at Auburn last season in 2021. Um, so he, he was put on his back quite a bit um, by the opponents. And I think having a clean pocket, knowing you have the time to let – the plays develop is also a, a critical piece here. Um, and uh, the connection between Dillingham and Knicks is paying off highest career average in yards per uh, completion at 8.3. He he's got the highest QBR rating so far in his career. It's 162.4. That's 32 points higher than what it was in 2021. Uh, his completion percentage is at 72%. That's 11 spots higher than what it was last season in 2021. Um, he's on pace to destroy his most touchdowns thrown in a season. He's at 10 right now, which was 16, which came in 2019 under Dillingham. Uh, I just think we're seeing the maturation of a quarterback in his fourth year, playing in his second year with an offensive coordinator. I understand it's two different teams, but there's some familiarity there. And they're running what works for him. And I can't say if that did or didn't happen at Auburn because I quite honestly didn't watch a ton of Auburn games. I haven't gone back and watched full clips of him at Auburn to just get a better feel. But what they're doing at Oregon fits his skill set. And they're not asking him to go above and beyond that. And they're, and they're not holding him back from things that he can do as well. They're, they're letting him try and make plays. Yeah, it's been a really encouraging start to the season for the quarterback position. That was it kind of felt like maybe the big question going into the year offensively. You knew you had the offensive line. You felt good about the, the young tight ends coming back. I think Cam McCormick deserves a little more shout out just because he's been, I think, tremendous through four games. Absolutely. Running back position, you knew you had a lot of guys. You didn't know how it was going to fit together, but you thought there were some pieces there and receiver kind of the same thing as running back. You didn't know me know the hierarchy was. We've kind of seen some of that to get them together with Bucky being the clear number one running back. And I think Troy Franklin becoming the clear number one wide receiver. But you kind of felt like those positions would work themselves out, assuming the quarterback play was good. And, and you saw a really a kind of a tough opener against Georgia. And the last three games, you've seen pretty darn good quarterback play. Better than that. Some, I think you could say this is probably the three, best three-game stretch from an Oregon quarterback since Justin was here. I don't think that's that much of a stretch. And, boy, you could probably match these three games up. I haven't gone and done it yet against any three games over Justin's career and say, yeah, it's probably pretty comparable to even his best stretches. So not saying he's better than Justin Herbert. That would be laughable. That would be a, a real tough angle for me to take, but just saying from a pure production. That would be a tough hill to die on. Yeah. I would, and I wouldn't want to, that would, I would rather die on another hill to be honest with you. But, uh, but I think you could make at least a compelling case in terms of the numbers that he's had a, about as good of a three game stretch as Justin. I, I'll have to go back and look and, and if I'm way off, I'll make note of it. Um, the next time we're on this week, but really impressed with what we've seen from Bonex. All right, next question from at Rugby Half. Obviously, it was a sloppy win. You'd rather play well start to finish, but don't you think the biggest takeaway you get from this game is the toughness of this team and the halftime adjust adjustments made by the staff? Hashtag. Odds and audibles. I want to read a quote. There's several quotes um, from Dan on kind of resiliency and kind of the makeup of this team, but a quote he, he gave was, "On our locker room never wavered. The guys in the locker room, the sideline never wavered. They were composed and ready to finish the entire game, and I think we knew 
that a lot of the issues that we were facing were self-inflicted wounds that we got that we've got to clean up. Um, I, you know, I, I and I think that never wavering part that that's the only way you win a game like this, right? Yeah. You know, Oregon. 100%. Oregon had been tested once this year in a game where they got down a lot. It was against a much better opponent, obviously in Georgia, and you know, you can argue that maybe they never wavered, but I think there was certainly not enough response to even make it competitive. It never got competitive. They lost by, I'll do the quick math, seven scores. Um, this time around, it got pretty hairy, and I was really impressed with the way they turned it around and the way they stuck with it and the way that there was, I mean, it's it's crazy to think about all that went down in that last 90 seconds even three and a half minutes, if you will, of Oregon scores three touchdowns in that span. <laughs> Washington State scores a touchdown in that span. There are four touchdowns scored in three and a half minutes. Uh, I mean, that's 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 nuts. But just the way that the offense executed, defense executed, there was no margin for error in, the, in those sequences. If Washington State picks up an extra first down here, an extra first down there, the game is over. If Oregon doesn't score. Uh, either of those touchdown drives, the game is over. Uh, obviously, the makes Funa thing. If they allow a touchdown, that game gets maybe over. But Funa scores a touchdown, so they didn't need the touchdown there. But getting a stop in general was all they needed. I mean, they, they, but the, the, the outcomes that took place were what had to take place to win the football game. And basically, after being probably out executed for about fifty six, fifty seven minutes, they dominated the last three and did everything they could to finish with the win. And I, I come away really impressed with this. There are certainly, as Dan said, a ton of things to work on. I think that's really obvious, and we touched on a lot of those on Saturday's show. But I think you have to feel really, really good about kind of the way this team finished this game and the way they won this game and, and what this can do to maybe galvanize the team going forward into conference play. Obviously, it's extremely impressive that they came back and won this game with Dan talking about how the bench never wavered, I'm not surprised at all by that. I mean, they dominated the first half. The score just didn't reflect it. They had what, 321 yards of offense, 163 for Washington State, nearly doubled them. Uh, their red zone inefficiencies were just the issue here. Uh, we, I think I talked about this on the podcast. If Oregon had scored touchdowns and all of their red zone trips like they really have been all season long, it would have been 20, 28 to 10 going into half. You know, that would have been without the Bonex interception and the pick six, which was the only points Washington State scored in the, in the second quarter. They had 10 points in the first quarter. Um, I'm not surprised that they weren't wavered. Obviously, it takes that mindset and that ability to come back and win this game because, yeah, you know what? They didn't go into halftime up 28 to 10. They were down. And so, obviously, they need to have some resiliency and some can-do-it attitude uh, chop of wood carrying water, as Dan Lanning would say. I don't know what that means, but I think that's just talks about putting in the work. Um, I love coach talk. It's one that's one of my favorite quotes as well. Um, I just this was an all out just determination that they were going to win. And it really manifested in the last five minutes. And with Nick stepping up with the defense stepping up at points with Washington State going conservative on the play calling, you know, that's not Oregon's fault. They just took advantage of that. And I'm sure if Washington State gets a, got a do-over with this, they wouldn't go as conservative. But I, mean, um, I don't know. Didn't they kind of just stick with the same screen game stuff that was working, and Oregon blew it up at the end? That's kind of what it felt like to me. I a little bit, got- yeah. But that was, but the, the yeah, I the drive before the Mace Foon interception was pretty conservative. Huh. Oregon Oregon did tackle well in space for like the first time during during most of the fourth fourth quarter. So that also right. had something to do with it, right? Um, but I, again, this is just a team that was determined to go for it. And in terms of answering like the question, the actual question, even though I've been talking for a little bit, um, it's just the biggest takeaway. And yeah, they made adjustments. They made a lot of adjustments. And at points, it didn't really look like those adjustments were working just because of inefficient tackling again for, for most of this game. But offensively, those adjustments worked. Uh, in the first half, Oregon was running the ball a lot. Um, because it was, you know, it was the first half of the game. But once they got down in the second half, they they threw the rock a lot, and they put their put their team basically on Bo Nix's shoulders. And this is you know, more praise for Nix, but that adjustment of throwing the ball a lot, um, making that the key component of their offense, it worked. And Nix was lights out, and he you know led this team down the field multiple times for scores. 
um, I think it's I think it's really impressive from this young of a coaching staff to be able to make these adjustments in this situation in that environment uh, on the road. Your first conference game in, in Pullman is not an easy thing to do. Um, to be down by 12 with was it like six minutes left in the third quarter, five minutes left in the third quarter, um, and to come back and win, even though it was crazy and hectic, and they still gave up a touchdown with five seconds left. Um, Really, just it, it really impressive, but they still got a lot of work to do. I I think the adjustments weren't player focused. It was more so play calling in the red zone. Let's run some more plays that have higher success rates. Um, and then I I think it was okay the first one or two times to go into the red zone and run things that were working against BYU the previous week because you you need to see if you know Washington State is at the same level or better than the Cougars. But I think from a sideline to sideline standpoint, Washington State was a much faster team than BYU was. And I think it took Oregon staff a little bit to adjust to that. And when the field got condensed and they still tried to run sideline to sideline type plays, in a short space, sometimes even to the short side of the field, you know, they were blown up because Washington state is fast. They, they, their defense has dudes that can fly. And it was very evident that Oregon could run the football effectively when they would spread things out and, and go right at them, run directly and use a play action. Um, and then, or use guys out of the backfield after everyone's kind of leaked out. Um, and I think that's how Oregon scored in the red zone in the second half or after their first couple of issues uh, in the red zone. So for me, it, it was like you guys both said, the Oregon offense never really got stopped from moving the football uh, right. in this game. It, it was literally just an execution thing. And I think the execution was was the Oregon offense, play callers, running plays that had high success rates instead of plays that were low. And that was the first, that was the halftime adjustment in, in my eyes is just the play calling and the effectiveness inside the red zone compared from the first half to the second half. All right, guys, I'm switching a question here. Cause I feel like the, there's a question I think we better on the back half. So I, I hate to do this. You can, the show notes, it's going to be backwards, but I just decided on the fly to do this way. So apologize. Okay, let's do it. From at Ty English 13, what are your thoughts on Cardwell's situation? Is he still injured, or is this a case of him being fifth in the rotation? It's just very confusing to see as a fan. Hashtag Otsnodables. Um, Yeah, Byron is still going through some sort of an injury. Again, Dan's pretty uh, pretty tight-lipped in terms of details on this stuff. I think it looks like ankle-foot kind of thing. I think it's an ankle, honestly. He's got his ankles been kind of taped up, but I, I couldn't tell you one way or the other. He did – there was a couple of players that before the game were working with the training staff to, just to kind of test things out. I believe he was one of them, wasn't he, Jared? Wasn't it him? No. Was it, it was just flowing and, flow and walk? Flow and walk. That was okay. It, yeah. So it wasn't. It wasn't even Byron. So maybe, maybe, maybe it was determined. He, he traveled, by the way. Like he was there. Yeah, so it's he was there. Like he, and and you have a condensed travel roster, so you don't travel a guy who's like completely incapable of playing. You think you can only? We still don't know the exact number. I think it's seventy-four. Seven, it's at 70 online somewhere, and then we counted 74. So we're like, I, I, mean, I don't know. It's 74, 75, somewhere in that range. So I, I don't want to cut you off, but Cardwell's mom on Twitter said he was healthy, ready to go. Okay. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So that sure answers the was he healthy or not healthy debate. Okay. Well, and then if we're getting into this part of it, uh, has he been practicing fully? I don't know. No. Yeah. If he, I mean, if he's been practicing fully, that's one thing. If he hasn't been practicing, I mean, it's one thing to say he's healthy. It's one thing to say he's even practicing fully, right? Yeah. Because yeah. he's I not. Mean, from, I mean, from what what we've seen, he hasn't been. And so maybe that's maybe that's what it is. I, I also know that parents can get very protective of their kids' playing time. And Byron was looked at as somebody who was supposed to come in and be. We talked about it going into the spring, into the fall, into the offseason of like, he's probably going to be the guy. And then I started hearing, you know, right before fall camp, like really, really be careful on how you're framing this. Cause it sounds like he, he's not only is he not the guy, he might not be close to being the guy. Um, right. Like, so, and we, and that's when we started talking about the Bucky's and the Noah's and those guys are having really good 
like you guys to kind of monitor the transfers are really good. Um, I, I imagine he's, well, I mean, let's put it this way. When he has been healthy, when has he entered? Fourth or, I think he's been the fourth guy, both games. Yeah. Is my recollection against Georgia and Eastern before yeah. whatever injury took place. Um, I, I just think that this kind of goes back to the question we got last week with Thornton and what are you going to do? And there's only so many carries in a game. And this is one in which they had to throw the football quite a bit. And sports is a game. Sports is, is something that the best play. And if you're not the best player at the position or the second or sometimes third best player at the position, your chances of, of playing time are limited. And the reality is the staff feels like Bucky and Noah are ahead of Byron Cardwell. And it's not like Bucky and, and Noah aren't producing. And we have a small sample size of Cardwell from last season or this year where he's producing well. But the reality is, is as conference games show up, we see this in basketball. Benches get tightened, shortened. And this is what we're seeing. I just don't think you know Cardwell is in the eyes of the staff as good as, as Bucky, as good as Noah. And until Noah and Bucky don't, perform what why would you pull them off yeah i think it's as simple as what matt just said um i think cardwell has been dealing with an injury and that held him out against byu specifically um he might be healthy but it, clearly he was still limited in practice um, his ankle is still heavily ta taped um i think i think anybody knows that you, you're going to need a, a fully functioning ankle to be a running back um i think cardwell is full of talent i was somebody who thought he'd come into the season as a starter but uh, I don't know. Are you or when are you guys going to take out Bucky or, or Whittington um, for, no. for Cardwell right now? No, and that, that that's the thing. That's exactly what Matt just laid out. Who are you going to who are you going to not give reps to? And if Dollars is a third down running back, which he has seen to be and has been productive at points, um, then that's your one, two, and three. Uh, if Byron is the fourth guy looking in. Um, well, he's, that's he, just kind of how it is. He's not even the fourth guy because when they go short yardage, they go like Jordan James. James, right? So, like, right. it's, I mean, so this is how, if, if you want to just look at it from Roll's perspective, it's kind of what I outlined Saturday. It seems like you've got two guys that you rotate through first and second down primarily, and that's Bucky and that's Noah. And in the first half of the last two games, it's been almost entirely one series Bucky, second series Noah, third series Bucky, fourth series Noah, and in the second half they kind of go with the hot hand and mix those two, interchange those two a little bit more. And then third down, if it's a passing situation, in comes Sean Dollars. If it's a run situation, in comes Jordan James, and so forth and so on. So um, that's kind of where you're at. And you know, I I think it's it'll be interesting to see with Cardwell um, what he decides to do if if, if this is if he's like 100% healthy. And we're hearing from like it sounds like from his mom that he is. I, I I disagree from what I'm watching in practice because of what we're seeing, where it looks like he's doing some and not all of it, um, and his ankle is pretty ta taped up. Um, and it's just it's but it, it is interesting it, 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 if he's cleared to play and he makes the trip, and he his mom says he's healthy and he's available and he doesn't even get any reps. I think that's really telling because to, to, to distinguish between. The question about Dante last week and seven, we've had a couple about that. Those guys are still playing 20-plus snaps per game. I was just looking at PFF to see, like, how many snaps is, did Dante play against BYU after that question. He played 21 snaps against BYU. He just was targeted once, and the ball bounced off his hands, was intercepted. Cardwell made the trip and just never saw the field. Yeah. A little bit different. You know, Dante's like your fifth guy and actually had a really nice play this yeah. last game. Had a nice 42-yard catch. The running back rotation doesn't allow you to be the fifth guy and play very much. In fact, this is what fans have been, you know, it's funny because this is what fans have been complaining about was they, they're trying to play five guys, don't play five guys. Well, they're condensing the rotation. It's just the guy that the fans really like is now left out of it, whether it's by health or, or, or just by a fit in the rotation. So it is interesting. I will be curious to see this upcoming week against Stanford if there's an opportunity to get bench is emptied what do you do with byron does he come in late in the game if he's is maybe he gets to be a full participant participant at practice and now we're looking at him as somebody who plays 
a different role. We'll see. But I think it's certainly one of the more interesting offensive kind of storylines right now. This is like, this is a guy everybody thought was going to be a big part of the offense. And he played quite a bit the first two games. He hasn't played at all the last two. And it's not like, just looking at the stats here. I mean, Bucky's sixth in the conference in yards per average at 6.97. He's in the top 10 in rushing yards at 265 total yards. And you look at the guys who are in the top seven of the league. You have 56 carries for Jaden Ott, 60 carries for Valade at Arizona State. You have Travis Dye's one of the few that has you know less than 50. He's got 49. Um, Washington's got a running back at 48. And then Charbonneau at UCLA is 43. Tavion Thomas at Utah is 61. But all of those guys have even more carries than him, have more opportunities. They have more yards, but they have more opportunities. And Whittington is not very far behind. He's at 14th in, in the country or in the conference at, at 175 on the year rushing. But he's over five yards of carry, too. Oregon hasn't had a lot of running backs since 2016, I believe, go over five yards of carry in a season. Um, and right now, Oregon has two of them. And so... Well, Cardwell has... Cardwell's there, too. And Cardwell averages yeah. 6.9. So, yeah. I mean, so... They've got a bunch. It's just a case of there's... You can't... You said it best. You can't feed everybody. Because if you do... Then the fans are going to be complaining that why don't they pick one guy? Why don't they pick two guys and let them get a bulk of the work? That's what's happening. Two guys are getting a bulk of the work now, and it's just not Byron Cardwell. And that's sports. That's fine. It's that's honestly fine. what it is, but mostly it's not the two guys fans want it to be. Fans, yeah. fans thought their expectations the whole season that it was going to be Byron. And it's not right now, whether it's because of health or something else. And I think people are frustrated. I mean, we see it on the message board right now. Oregon just had, a, I think, a really impressive running, you know, game of running the football, and there's still people saying favoritisms at play that they're playing that Lachlan is playing his guy, um, and not to extend this too much, but No Whittington is a player who I think people were pretty down on after the first couple of games. People are saying he's not like a major power five running back. I went and looked at his PFF grade yesterday, and it's significantly better than anyone on the teams was last year which was surprising to me, but his PFF grade is close to 80, which is, is very good. And he had a, a couple rough moments in the first couple of games. I talked about those, about the kind of bad luck in terms of what opened up. And people kind of don't felt like they lost trust or something in him. And I thought he, but I thought he performed really well against Washington state. And I, I think it's warranted that he plays the reps he gets. I don't think there's any favoritism to play. It's the same thing with, with Irving, you know, when, when Irving dropped like two or three passes in the first two weeks, Everybody said, why is this guy playing? And then fourth and two, who does Knicks go go to over the middle? 30 yards down the field, 25 yards down the field, it's Bucky Irving. Um, this is a really talented running back room. And, uh, I mean, frankly, we're only having this conversation because of how good Oregon's offensive line is and that they're all yeah. able to, to eat and that they're all able to have these good stats. But I don't know about you guys, but when you watch the games, um, I've never seen Byron Cardwell do anything like Bucky Irving has in some of his runs. It's been extremely phenomenal what Irving has done behind this offensive line and in this offense. So I think it's clear as day. And, you know, this goes back. I think we've belittled the point at this point, but it yeah. goes back to what Matt said. This is, uh, this is football. Um, you're, either re- you're either good and you play or you're not and you don't. And uh, I think Byron Cardwell is really talented and he's really good, but these guys just might be better. All right. It's going to take a break here on the Austin Audible's podcast. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. 
Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Three questions in, two more to go. Uh, the, the questions have been changed on me, but I do believe it's now time to look ahead instead of in the past of what's happened the last couple of weeks. That's exactly right, which is why I made the change here because I felt like we should just stick with future stuff here, like looking forward because we just did three Ooh, questions that have, that have been, yeah. We're looking in the past, let's turn to the future. This one's from at Doak Roki. What are the chances an eight and one Oregon hosts a nine and zero Washington for college game day on November twelfth? Hashtag Otsnodables. I brought this up, Matt, because we were we were talking this, about it. This exact discussion on the drive back from uh, from Pullman on Sunday morning, of like, you know what, Oregon's schedule is pretty favorable from here. Washington's schedule is very favorable from here. Matt even pulled up kind of the November twelfth slate and started looking through there and being like, is it going to be potentially like an LSU? Alabama or some kind of big time, you know, I, I don't know, an Ohio State, Michigan game. And there's not really from what we looked like and maybe some, maybe something will develop where other teams get hot and, and there is like a top 10 matchup elsewhere. But right now you kind of look at it and try to project forward. I think that's a pretty, I mean, if both teams take care of business, that's a scenario mm -hmm. that I could see taking place. And for Oregon, you know, you look at the upcoming schedule here, they go Stanford, this week, they go to the road against Arizona. They go bye week. They host UCLA. That'll be, a, that'll be a challenge. That's probably the biggest challenge on this run, in my opinion. And they hit the road for Cal and Colorado. And then they come back and play Washington. I, I think I think Oregon will be favored in every one. I don't think. I'm very confident Oregon will be favored in every one of those games. Probably by a score, you know, seven points or more in most of them. And if they take care of business, win those games, they're going to be eight and one, and if you look at Washington's schedule, I think there's a really good chance that they're nine and zero. Oh, and I think it adds up that you'd have game day here, which would just add to this game because I'd forgotten about this, Matt, until I saw you posted it on social media. That these two teams haven't played at Austin since 2018, since that miraculous overtime game where Verdell walks it off with the with the overtime touchdown, because in 2020 they were scheduled to play, but COVID got in the way. Um, and the reason for the COVID getting in the way, you know, with, with that, the impact of that was the conference championship was, you know, yep. you know, flipped and all sorts of things. There's a lot of animosity. And frankly, this could be an all-time great game between this rivalry because for the most part, over the last, I don't know, two or three decades, when Oregon's good, Washington's been crappy. When Washington's been good, Oregon's been crappy. This might be a rare time where both these teams are pretty good. This is, yeah, I mean, the, the chances are super high. I mean, uh, I don't have too much else to say because Eric, you just outlined the the situation and where these guys could meet at eight and one and nine and zero, oh, um, and it would be a hell of a game. Uh, that the 2018 game on the walk off uh, touchdown for Verdell, as the last time they were in Austin, just like Eric mentioned, um, this would be just as good. This would be uh, a great first introduction for Dan Lanning into the Washington rivalry. Um, same with Kellen DeBoer. Um, I, I think this is. That hopefully it happens. Like Eric mentioned, the team might get hot somewhere else in the country, and there could be a, uh, an up and down potentially where um, there might be another option for game day to go to. But you know, looking looking ahead, this is a lot of weeks ahead right now. But yeah. um, things look to be moving their way into this possibility, which would just be spectacular for the Oregon football brand. Look, let's let's just push game day aside here for a second. This is our call to Josh Pate that it's time that the Every Given Sunday Tour comes west. Mm -hmm. And this is the game to do it because you – Pate loves college football. And he's not been out west. This is a perfect situation to get him familiar with the West Coast brand of football in one of the most vile rivalries in college football. This is what makes college football awesome. You have two teams, one above the state, one below the state. They hate each other. Their fan bases hate each other. The the There has been a ton of back-and-forth jabs with previous staffs here. Uh, like you said, they haven't been here since 2018. 
And like you said, Eric, these two teams rarely play each other when both teams are good. I, and typically when they are, everything gets cranked up a notch or three. And I would think there's going to be a lot of UW fans at this game. It's going to have the potential for two top 10 UW Oregon teams to be meeting each other because these are the schedules that, that they play before they meet in Eugene on November 12th. Um, and it's a long ways to go, but like you said, winnable games, Oregon plays Stanford at home at Arizona, UCLA at home at Cal at Colorado. And then they get a bye week going into that Washington game. It would be a stunner if Oregon loses two of those games. It would almost be a stunner in my eyes, at least if they lose one of those games that Oregon has to play before Washington. And then you look at the Huskies schedule at UCLA on Friday this week, they play at ASU. Then they get Arizona, they get at Cal. And then the week before, uh, actually, and then Oregon state and they too get a bye week before Oregon. So, that Oregon State game could be dicey. This Friday's game against UCLA will show us a lot for Washington. But the feeling is, is both of these teams should have a combined one or two losses added to their to their names by the time they meet. And the real possibility of two top 15, two top 10 teams is there. And so if game day doesn't come, we got to get Josh paid out here. And maybe it should be, Screw game day. Get Josh paid out here anyways, and let's let's show him what West Coast football and, and Oregon football is like because we've heard it for, forever. Oregon is like the SEC of the West from a fan perspective, from a tailgate perspective, from an atmosphere perspective. Let's get, let's get paid out here to see that and see if it's true. I also just want to meet that guy. I've watched so many of his videos, and we've messaged back and forth. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Uh, it'd be fun to chat with him. Hopefully, he makes it out here. I did want to, con- to clarify: uh, Oregon's bye week is October fifteenth, not not right before the Washington game. Oh, yeah. it's not. I had it. I had no. it wrong. And the only reason I bring it up is because I have a, uh, a trip to the coast. I was really excited about. This that, is uh, true. That I was that I was going to be like, boy, if I that, if I got that wrong, I would have to. Uh, send That'd be know, unfortunate. Yeah, I'm going to phone call. Neither does Oregon this. State. Uh, or neither does Washington. It's just math is hard. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but but your point remains entirely is, is the point I was making is the schedules for both teams are, are very, very favorable. And again, Washington and Oregon, neither plays USC this year, which is like going to make this, this is the year to do it to not this, play them. This is going to make kind of, they're actually pretty good. They're actually really good. This could be a really interesting run for the conference championship, not to just further this too much. But you think about Utah, USC. Oregon, Washington. I'll throw UCLA in as a as a kind of the fifteen to maybe monitor. It could be really tight coming down to the end here, and that part of it also shouldn't be lost. We haven't mentioned it, but this November twelfth game with Washington, the winner of that could be kind of st- you know pushed right into the you know the conference championship game, or both the winner of that game could drop another game later, and neither team makes it because of the new yeah. the new yeah. rules and all that. So. I think it's going to be fascinating, but I've, I've got that one cer- certainly circled on my schedule, as do I the weekend after, November 19th, um, when Oregon hosts Utah. It's going to be an absolute – It's a tough back-to-back. <laughs> grueling, grueling November schedule. And then they go to Oregon State the following weekend. I mean, Oregon finishes with three really tough games. They start with a bunch of tough games. Middle section here that we're entering feels a little bit light, and then it ends really tough. All right, last question. And this is a focused on Stanford question, which is, I thought, a good way to end it. At Hero541YT, how do you guys feel about Oregon? How do you guys feel Oregon stacks up with Stanford in their pass game? The Cardinal have some Redwood sized receivers and a competent enough quarterback in the key. So that matchup intrigues me considering Stanford's struggles of late. Stanford's struggles of late is a good place to start. Um, this is a program that. It's really not on the not on the incline, that's for sure. I mean, it's it's hard to say it any way, any other way. The last time I believe they beat an FBS team was when they beat Oregon last year. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's correct. Did they beat Colgate this year? That's their only win this year, and then they lost every game to end last year. Um, 
I mean, it's, it's, it's tough down there, man. I mean, and, and it's a Stanford program that I talked about earlier on the show has, has for so long been one of the biggest thorns in Oregon's side. And I'm not going to say this weekend won't be that, but some of the sizzle from an Oregon-Stanford rivalry, you know, we talk about the Oregon-Washington rivalry amping up. We talk about the Oregon-Utah rivalry, the Oregon-Oregon State, Oregon-Washington State, some of those, some of these games. If Oregon does face USC in a conference championship game, how these games would be kind of perceived. Oregon-Stanford one's kind of losing its luster, even though, even though Stanford's still been incredibly competitive in the most recent iterations of these games, um, including last year's just <laughs> – can't get over how Oregon lost that game. It's been a year. Um, yeah. But to the question here, you know, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting one because what Oregon does best defensively, Stanford's kind of meh. Probably not going to rely on its run game very much. Hasn't been very good so far this year. What Oregon struggles with has been covering receivers on long developing kind of routes, and that's where Stanford could pose some problems. Um, Tanner McKee is a very competent quarterback. We saw that last year. We saw that even, I think, for part of the game in 2020 when Davis mm -hmm. Mills was out with COVID. McKee played the second half of that game. Um, McKee's been solid this year. He's, he's actually third in the conference in yards per attempt with 9.3. He's averaging about 270 yards passing per game. That's fifth. Um, his quarterback rating is like seventh, but there's a bunch of guys with great quarterback rating scores in this conference right now. I mean, the quarterback play, this is a time, another conversation for another time, but has just in general been really pretty outstanding for the most part. Like there's a lot of new compared to last year. Yeah. A lot of newcomers. Good and Lord. it's been so much better than it was last year. Like, like there are about six guys that feel like they're better than just about anybody on the conference who was starting a year ago, but like he's touchdown interception ratio hasn't been great. Six touchdowns, four picks. I think two of those were in the red zone against USC in a game yep. that could, that could have been even you know could have been a little closer. Um, and then to the Redwood receiver question or part part of the question, yeah, I mean, the, Stanford living up to their kind of their uh, I guess identity and, and kind of the, the stereotype here. Their four main receivers are are Michael Wilson. He's six foot two. John Humphreys. He's six foot five. Elijah Higgins. He's six foot three. And Bryson Tremaine, who's six foot four so these are big guys on the outside and um the size of a triquist bridges who's been kind of a, a weakness not kind of has been a weakness this year in coverage maybe he can kind of offset some of that by being at least similar size to these guys but he needs to get in and out of his breaks quicker he needs to you know cover space better um as to not get beat, beaten frequently but i i do agree with kind of the question here of this is being probably for me the big question is I, I'm expecting Oregon's offense to do just fine. I, I don't think there's many teams in this conference that will slow Oregon's offense with regularity, and I certainly don't think it's Stanford right now. But the question is, can Stanford hang around, make things interesting in a shootout? Could Oregon make some mistakes and, and kind of like last year's game, gives you know enough rope to hang themselves and, and Stanford wins in kind of just a surprising fashion? And the only reason I bring it up is because of the question here, which I think is spot on, which is that Stanford has the quarterback and has some big receivers on the outside to maybe take advantage of what I don't even think is a perceived weakness at this point. It just is a weakness, which is its pass coverage. Yeah, no, this is not a great matchup on paper if you're Oregon, where your biggest weakness is your secondary. And you bring Tanner McKee, who's a very competent quarterback, who's probably going to be drafted, who is probably going to get – I don't know, probably some shot in the NFL with 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 a franchise to be a backup quarterback. Um, and then a bunch of tall receivers. Um, not great. Not exactly what you want. I, I think the only thing that Oregon might have going for them is that Stanford isn't much of what Washington State and BYU were, where they're mm -hmm. passing along the, the perimeter. Um, they are more north-south than any, honestly, probably any other team in the Pac-12. Um, because that's just kind of the Stanford tradition is they're going to run the ball and try to throw it deep and maybe have big crossing routes to their tight ends or their big receivers over the middle. That might be a benefit to Oregon just because they have, they, Oregon does have some size in their secondary, at least. Um, like Brian Addison is six foot five. Triquist Bridges is a tall guy with a huge wingspan. Christian Gonzalez is, is a bigger guy or a bigger cornerback who's really well built. Um, even someone like Bennett Williams, who isn't the tallest is a well-built guy. Um, they Oregon's defense has some size, which I think does help them in this case. But uh, it, it is going to be a, a testament to how long Oregon can cover 
Um, and if Oregon's pass rush can get to can get to McGee, McKee, excuse me, um, because that was a thing that happened against Ward where their pass rush was actually able to get there. Tanner McKee is not as agile as Cameron Ward, so maybe there might be a few more sacks if that same pass rush can last. But um, that's the first game that Oregon has had a pass rush. Uh, it would be a really nice time for them to go back-to-back weeks with one against Stanford. Um, we'll, we'll, that'll have to see. Uh, Stanford's offensive line is always pretty good. This year it's probably not as good as it has been in the past, but that's that's a little unfair to compare because they've had some monsters on those lines for in years prior. Um, but yeah, this is not covering is not necessarily a strength for Oregon. I think that's pretty darn fair to say. It's a, it's a weakness, and these guys can could potentially um, uh, expose that weakness on a grand scheme. And this could be another one of those wacky Oregon and Stanford games. Um, that wouldn't be all that surprising to me, just considering the history in the last couple of years. But uh, I think Oregon has the benefit that, that Stanford is not as athletic or as schematic um, as Washington State and BYU were to attack, attack along the perimeter and go more north-south than east-west. I got some thoughts because clearly, yes, Oregon does have the weakness in the secondary. Um, you look at Stanford and you look at what they do from a passing perspective and the guys that they have they got some dudes, you know, they, 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 no doubt about it. Michael Wilson is one of the best receivers in the conference. He's third in the league in, in yards per game. His average is just astronomically high. He leads the conference there at 22.15 yards per catch. He's got four touchdowns, which is near the top in the conference as well. Um, they, they have talent to, to put up, big numbers in, in the passing game. You brought up Tanner McKee, five-star quarterback. NFL eyes are certainly watching him. John Humphreys is another receiver that they've got that makes plays. They've got some tight ends that are big-bodied dudes. But the difference here is their offensive line is not good. And they rank 81st in PFF in pass protection. They are second. They're tied for last, actually in the conference and sacks allowed uh, they, they have allowed 13 sacks through three games. Um, Washington state has allowed 13 sacks through four games. So really, if you break those numbers down, right. Sanford's even worse. Um, <laughs> their, 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 their game averages are 4.33 sacks allowed. So it, it's kind of one of those ones where I think Eric was talking about it last year, uh, last week after this, the Washington state game, um, was that the Cougars' struggles kind of feed into Oregon's struggles here. And I think that's going to play out here a little bit as well, where they can't protect uh, their quarterback. And this isn't going to be an opportunity for Oregon to go out and develop its pass rush and to get to Tanner McKee, because this is an offense that's going to hold the ball even longer than right. what much longer, much longer that that Washington State did, and that's going to open the avenues for hits on McKee. And so while they have the studs at receiver, then because they've got a really good one, and I'm imagining Gonzo is going to be on him pretty much the entire game. They can't protect McKee, and McKee is not Cameron Ward. He's not. He's not Jalen Hall at, at at BYU, and he's not Stetson Bennett at georgia he's not mobile is he gonna is he gonna talking to him from eastern washington matt maybe in the mobility standpoint maybe in the mobility standpoint probably a little bit better there but everything sets up where yes if if they have time to throw it's gonna be a concern but i don't know if they're gonna have that time to throw and the tight ends of stanford they're living in the past off reputation they have dudes there, but these guys are nowhere near as special as what they were in the late 2000s and the early 2010s. Um, I, I just don't see it. And Stanford, it's of itself. I mean, I threw this tweet out yesterday. In the last 10 games, they're nine. They have nine losses, one win. That only win is against Colgate, and their nine losses have come by an average of 20 points 
scoring margin. They're not, they haven't been competitive against anybody at the FBS level. Their last win against an FBS team, as painful as it is, is against Oregon in a game mm-hmm. in which officiating errors opened the door for them to win that game. And also Oregon's offensive coordinator literally being in the hospital because he had a life-threatening emergency um, hours before kickoff. Oregon made mistakes in that game. Absolutely. 100%. But that's their last win. And that's what it took for them to get a win. And so I don't, we joked at the top of the, of the show that, you know, 16 points is, is a pretty high number. Maybe that's off the show, but when you look at the data and you look at what what this team is from Stanford, like maybe it's right, maybe it feels right. I I don't know. I, I still haven't decided yet, but I'm leaning towards Oregon kind of flirting with that with that cover. 16's really high, but this Stanford team is not good. They have good pieces, but this isn't basketball where one or two guys can carry your entire team to a deep run in, in March Madness. Football is. 100% a team sport, and you, you can have two or three really special players, but it's not enough to carry you through a season. Just just a, one final thought I had, um, and, and, and also just to kind of reiterate the value of potentially this petition is I think DJ Johnson's availability yes. as Oregon's best pass rusher to play in this game where you're right, Matt, Stanford's protection has not been great. McKee is also not Ward. He's not Hall. He's not Bennett. I don't know if he's going to talk to that kid. At least could move around a little bit. He just wasn't particularly effective throwing the football. Um, he is not a very he's not a very mobile guy, man. Like he's no. he's more of the Tom Brady like twenty twenty two, not Tom Brady twenty. How about a Matt Ryan? Uh, I'm just saying, like if you if you get if you get to him, he's going to go down. Basically, is the point I'm making. Yeah, right. Matt Ryan. All right, Matt Ryan. Tom Brady twenty twenty two, but okay, sure, Matt Bryan. No no Patriot hate here. My point yeah. is, like, if if you can manufacture a, a pass rush, I think that's really important. And DJ Johnson, because of what I still think is a very questionable targeting call, is currently set to not play in the in the, in the first half um, of Saturday's game. But I think Oregon will petition. I'd hope that they have a good chance of winning, and that he's available to play because he has been. He's leading the team in sacks. He has three right now. He had two in the last game alone. I think his. He has some serious value there off the edge because I haven't really seen a lot of other players bring it. And frankly, not that it's, I, I, I'm probably sounding like I think Oregon is like going to really struggle in this game. I, I don't know if I think that's the case at all. I think Oregon's probably going to win pretty comfortably. But the the kind of route for Stanford to make this interesting is they have time in the pocket. These receivers yep. have time to run down the field and they take advantage of some weaknesses. If DJ's not there, there just haven't been a lot of players that have really presented the pass rush that I'd like to see to feel confident in, in Oregon just slamming the door here and, and getting up by three scores at half or something. And that's fair. Yeah. And that's a, that's yeah. a fair take. They need, yeah, they're going to need somebody to disrupt. And Brandon Dorless did a good job of that against Washington state. Um, but you really need an edge guy in this case. You need mm-hmm. to force Tanner McKee to step up into Dorless, not Dorless to step in and then have him run around um, or have McKee run around. But yeah, no, that's that's a major key. That's a major factor into this game is whether they can get a pass rush. And uh, if McKee has time, that could be, like Eric mentioned, uh, that could be the a, a huge thing for why Stanford could come close to this. Um, just to, just to say, I think Oregon should keep all of their coaches in bubble wrap all week long <laughs> and make sure that like, <laughs> nothing happens because this is it's just gonna. I don't know. I, I it's sixteen and a half points is a lot. Um, I am. I have a feeling that they're they're going to come close to covering that spread just because of how good their offense has been. But these are the games. Um, every time it looks like one of these teams is going to have a, a, victor- a victory here, something happens. Yeah. Uh, a, a snap that goes airborne, an interesting call from a couple officials multiple times in the end zone. Um, just one of those games, man. And it's 8 p.m., so... That makes it even worse. It's like the witching hour of Pac-12 um, in October. So don't forget, there's actual witching hours coming. Yeah. Yes. It's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions. Thank you for sending, uh, listening to the show or watching it on YouTube. Uh, we'll be back later this week for more discussion on Oregon athletics or Oregon football as they gear up for 
this game at home against the Stanford Cardinal. Until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus.